I was uh, working through Mark chapter 6 and uh, putting together some thoughts together this week and noticed that, of course, this is the, the narrative that talks about the death of uh, John, the one who came baptizing, as a forerunner of Jesus. His ministry was uh, focused on preparing Israel to respond to their Messiah. And however you would think that success looks like, he was kind of an odd duck, had a really significant ministry, but it didn't end well. And what kept rummaging through my mind as I was thinking about this is the whole idea of when bad things happen to God's people. The obvious question is, why does God allow that kind of thing, and why would God not rescue someone like John, especially from the pettiness of people like Herod and Herodias, it just doesn't seem fair at all for his life to finish the way it did. I was uh, looking at some websites this week, Voice of the Martyrs and uh, the Persecuted Church, and I, I wonder how far outside of reality we sometimes live, which may sound like a strange comment, but we often live in a very comfortable, secure world where we have very little that really we could call persecution. Uh, I think most of us have kind of concluded, we uh, watched the uh, Left Behind series on Friday night as a movie, and it keeps reminding us of the, the fact that not only is Christ coming, but the world's going to get messier, and that Christians aren't necessarily the favorite uh, people group on the planet, that they uh, often become the victims of other individuals who are uh, hostile and antagonistic towards the gospel. Uh, sometimes they're hostile because we do stupid things and we deserve the hostility that the, we get inflicted upon us, but uh, we're not talking about that element. I was uh, looking at a story from Help the Persecuted Church about a man named Mustafa. Uh, he was uh, part of Islam and ended up converting to Christ, and it was so powerful that he had a friend of his that he also led to Jesus uh, right in the middle of an Islamic country. Um, in, in doing so, he knew that he was going to catch fire from his own family. In fact, when his family found out that he had accepted Christ, uh, they locked him in his room. His father ended up breaking all his fingers just to try to force him to recant of this newfound faith that was antagonistic to Muslim and, and uh, their belief systems. Uh, there is some record that they actually sort of went through the motions of trying to hang him from the ceiling fan in their home to force him to recant or they were going to kill him, his own family. Uh, they ended up getting baptized, they were rescued, uh, he escaped, uh, they literally locked him in his room, he figured out a way to escape, found his passport that they had confiscated and got rescued out of there and got into an environment that there he could find healing. But then he and his friend turned around and went back to their country as missionaries to reach other people for the gospel. Now, that's not a world you and I live in. We don't, we don't face this imminent sense of death. We can get some hostility from family and friends who think our decisions are stupid, but we rarely run into situations where our life is at stake. In this particular text that we're gonna deal with, we find the one who Jesus described as the greatest man on earth because he was the forerunner of Jesus, going through things that are, seem utterly ridiculous and unfair. In fact, they're horrible circumstances that end badly for John. And aside from the whole big picture of why would God even allow that to happen to one of his own, 
we want to sort of look at some of the issues that come into the play here, mostly because we're very far removed from this. Philosophically, we may go, it's coming, but it's still not part of the way we think. We don't wake up in the morning wondering whether someone's going to attack us or arrest us or persecute us because of our faith in Christ. Mark chapter 6 begins this way, starting in verse 21. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she immediately went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, that's being her mother, the head of John the Baptist, or the one baptizing. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and said, I want you to give me the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oath to his guests, he did not want to break his word to her, and immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When the disciples had heard of it, they came and took his body, and they laid it in the tomb. Well, I don't know about you, but that doesn't seem fair to me. There's nothing that, that sort of talks about this is the way a great servant of the Lord should finish his life. And it's part of something that doesn't enter our mind much, but I want to continue to remind you, as I was reminding myself of some of places around the world that don't have life quite as simplistic and as easy as we do, that there are 41 countries around the world considered restricted as far as the message of the gospel. There's lots of restrictions and rules and parameters about how you can operate in those particular countries. There's 23 countries around the world considered hostile towards the gospel. Now that most of it, I realize, falls far out of our realm in terms of what's going, but there's probably somewhere around 360 million Christians today who face persecution or some kind of aggressive aggression against them because of their faith in Christ. As I look at this story, I'm reminded that there's times that the world is very hostile towards the message of the gospel. And in spite of how far removed that is from us, I want to finish this morning giving you four principles at the end that help us think about how did we even get here? How does this go from John being the forerunner of Jesus to dying at a birthday party because of the animosity of a woman? I don't know if you picture how you look down the future and say, here's how I want to die, here's how I want to be remembered, but this wouldn't be it. We want to be known for making a difference and serving in ministry or being, having a legacy that shows my faithfulness to God. And it's all embedded in there in John's life, but he would probably never, as we wouldn't, picture our life ending like this. So I want to sort of rummage through this and give you some of the nuances of it to help understand the flow of the text because there's a lot here that we won't get into but I want to at least sort of bring to your attention to show how messed up people really can be. It begins here with what I call the party, which I will call a disguise for evil. 
The party is Herod's birthday. I don't know how old Herod is at this particular time, but usually I don't run into too many grown men throwing birthday parties for themselves. Uh, it's just not part of our makeup. You know, we have a lot of fun throwing birthday parties for infants and kids. In fact, most families throw three or four or five of them just as an excuse to either overload a kid with so many toys and stuff that they'll never know what to do with them, or it's just a good excuse to get people together. But you and I both know that that's kind of what parties are for. Uh, parties are, are places where we introduce friends and get connected with people. When life is really busy, we find there's all kinds of reasons to do this. Uh, I, we used to, in the ministry, we often joke that that's the whole purpose of weddings and funerals is to pull families together. Otherwise, they never see each other. Even some that live in the same areas don't see each other because their life is so busy and so hectic that the only way you can pull off getting together with anybody is having a party of some sort, good, bad, or whatever. But often in this particular case, this is meant to impress people. Herod is throwing his own party and he's inviting all the important people that are around him and in the city because he needs to be in their favor. He needs these networks, he needs these connections because of his position and the things that he wants. And so often parties are, are really brought together to connect people together, but it's also meant to impress them, and we'll see that as we go through here. He doesn't want to look like he's second place to anybody in this story, and so he's going to try to impress the socks off everybody that's uh, a who's who of anybody in the, this particular city. Um, and so we notice that as innocent as it starts, it really becomes a covering for evil that's going to develop later. The entertainment is Herodias' daughter. There's actually kind of an interesting nuance in the text where it literally reads in some texts that it's his daughter. It's the personal pronoun in the third person singular masculine, and it would literally read his daughter. But we know from the previous text that this is not his daughter by blood. He, she is a stepdaughter because John one of his challenges as part of his ministry in preparing people was calling people to repentance, and Herod was an exception to that, and he was in Herod's face telling him that to have Herodias, who happened to be uh, Herod's brother's wife, Philip, uh, was against the law. So however you want to spin that, he's this, they're, they're living together, they've got a relationship that is not in accordance with the law, and John is hauling them on it, and he doesn't like it, and she doesn't like it either. But the text literally has about the idea is that Herodias' daughter from her marriage with Philip, it comes in to entertain people and to dance. Now, regardless of what you think of dancing, lots of people do it. I've seen most of you do it at weddings, uh, so it's not a bad thing. I know we can get hung up on those things. I don't know the nature of what was going on here, but she was the entertainment. And she impressed people so much, and they were awing what she was doing, whatever it looked like, that Herod thought, okay, I've got to do something to appreciate what's going on here and to impress my guests that I'm a generous person and that I appreciate the things that are going on. So he comes to her and makes a promise. And the, and the promise really creates this danger for evil and yet it's still very much in disguise. It's hidden in plain sight, but he doesn't know that his promise is gonna get him and John in a very difficult moral dilemma. And so in this sense, the purpose is people are celebrating something that's supposed to be of value. But, but parties are also places where there's a lot of deals that are made. 
Uh, you talk in the business world, there's parties that are often, more deals are made at parties and celebrations than they are in the office sometimes. This is where things happen. And so as they put this together, he makes this promise to her, and the purpose is to probably impress his guests. If the guests weren't there, there probably would, never would have been a promise made. But as they begin to look at this, he makes a promise, and it's one of the most elaborate promises you'll see a human being make in all of the scriptures. He makes this statement that when he, you know, the king says to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I'll give it to you. Now, she may be a stepdaughter, but I don't know any child when a parent says, listen, I'll give you whatever you want, just tell me what it is. Now, first of all, no parent in the right mind would say that. But at times, I think kids would love their parents to say that. I remember when we dealt with our own kids growing up, and uh, they wanted to go to school, and we put boundaries in terms of what we would do in terms of higher education and college and all that kind of stuff. And as part of the conversations, and I won't tell you who said it or anything, but one of the kids says, well, isn't that what parents are for, is to like pay for this stuff? And I said, well, I apologize, I didn't get that memo. And so there's always this dynamic in families of the expectations that what parents should be doing for their kids and, and step-parents do for their step-kids and all this kind of thing. Uh, most of the time it's a point of frustration and conflict rather than, you know, ask me whatever you want and I'll give it to you. Now, of course, if it reminds you of something, it should. If you remember going back into Esther, when Esther went before the king, that was exactly the same thing that happened. She was risking her life to go in there to appeal for the people of Israel because there had been a law established that all Israel was going to be slaughtered. She hadn't been before the king for over a month, and she walked in knowing that this was life or death. And when he raised the golden scepter to her, he says, Esther, Ask me whatever you want up to half of my kingdom and I'll give it to you. I mean, it's an incredible promise and it's a promise that, that's basically made by people who have the resources to do that kind of thing. As I said, most parents in their right mind would never say something like this. So as you begin to walk through it, you also discover that while it's an exaggeration, there's a lot of weight that comes with words. And so he makes this promise to her and then he makes a vow to reinforce it. Now most of us don't think of vows or those kinds of things unless you're talking about weddings, marriages. We enter into covenant by exchanging vows with one another. And there's a lot that we could say about it, but he not only makes a promise, but he backs it up with a vow because he doesn't want to look bad in front of all this royalty and all these who's who that belong to the city. He's got all his leading commanders and his military people there. He's got the leading men uh, and people of the city. So he wants to look good. He wants to impress them. And so he makes not only this promise, but he backs it up with a pledge saying, whatever you want up to half my kingdom, I'll do it. Well, I know if I ever said that to my daughter, She'd go long and hard. I don't know if she'd go and ask her mom, what should I ask for? She might consult her friends. She might think on it a week. She'd come back, and I'd be trembling in my boots about what she'd ask for, because it could be pretty a mammoth. But when he makes this promise, he makes this promise and puts himself way out there by coupling it with a vow. And what I'm reminded of immediately is that 
we really have to be careful about the promises we make in life. You know, it's important to have the character to do it, but one of the things that needs to creep into our thinking, even though we don't ever think that we'll be martyred, is that our words are powerful, and the promises that we make mean something. Uh, Unfortunately, we live in a world where at times you will find Christians who will make promises and often not follow through on them, especially if they get costly to me. If I have to suddenly, circumstances change, and and it costs me something to fulfill the promise that I'm doing. It doesn't matter whether it's personal or in the workplace or whatever it happens to be, at school, with my friends, or whatever. It's easy these days, even for Christians, to make statements or promises that sound, or statements that sound like promises, and then, oh, you know what, something better came along, I'm gonna go do this. I, I wanna remind you, just as a sort of a pause here, what Matthew chapter five talks about. Jesus says, I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, and he goes on, let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than that comes from evil. I don't believe Jesus is talking about contracts and business and those things, but it's amazing the kind of promises that people make. In fact, you'll heard of the the foxhole promises where, God, if you get me out of this, I'll serve you for the rest of my life. And the moment they get rescued, it's on as, as it was. That there's not a second thought given to Jesus about what the commitment was. Jesus rallied on the Pharisees and the scribes. Woe to you blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing, but if anyone swears by the goal of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, Jesus says, which is greater, the gold or the temple that, it, that has made the, the gold sacred? But that's the world we live in. We live in a world where people will make all kinds of promises, but they'll cross their fingers in lots of different ways so that, well, yeah, but that's not exactly what I meant, and they'll always find nice loopholes to get out of it. And and what we have to do is make sure that our word is reliable and is good. When we make promises, when we make commitments, it's critical for us to follow through on them. And this becomes a perfect scenario where Herod is making grandiose promises about what he can do, and then he's going to find that living up to those promises is going to get him in trouble. The petition, of course, really starts unveiling the darkness and the evil that's sort of under the surface of all the partying and the celebration. So she goes out, and she starts this collusion with her mother, saying, listen, Mom, what should I ask? I find it hard to believe that Herodias' daughter doesn't know what her mom would ask for. I think they're in a bit of cahoots here, and I think they're working together. Uh, You know, here she's got a wish that she can ask for anything she wants, and she's basically giving it off to her mom. She's going to waste it giving it to her mom. (laughs) Like, what, what person in their right mind would give it away? Especially when they could ask for whatever they wanted. But the, but the issue is, is they go through this process of collusion. For the daughter, it's an opportunity. It was a unique opportunity for her, but it's also an opportunity for her mother's obsession. If you followed the text, you know that she has literally a grudge that she is holding against John because he has challenged their relationship, her relationship with Herod. And her animosity is so high that she has hung on to this, and she's hung on to it, and she's not letting go, and this is the perfect scenario to get even with them. 
And so her mom is going to take advantage of this grandiose promise and vow that Herod make. Now they're together, but she's going to manipulate his own promise and words so that she can get what she wants. Bet you've never had that happen in any relationship that you've had. And so as they come back, the daughter comes scrambling back into the, into the area where they're celebrating his birthday, and she communicates what her request is. Now remember, this is supposed to be a birthday party. And it's amazing to me that people would stoop this low to take advantage of a birthday party in order to do something that is literally inherently evil, and that is to take someone's life. Her animosity is so consuming that she doesn't care what's going on around her. She wants what she wants, and she's going to get it even if it means exploiting the situation at someone's birthday party. And I will suggest to you that the petition that they make reflects the toxic waste of holding on to animosity, ill will, or resentfulness, because it consumes people. People who have been hurt by others, and apparently Herodias would say this is John's fault because he challenged the way I was living, that the idea here is she's going to hold a grudge, and you can pick all kinds of words to describe this. Animosity, hatred, revenge. She's ticked. And she doesn't know anything about the nature of forgiveness. That's pretty apparent. And this toxic waste that's been stirring in her heart is now going to come out like a raging animal and she's going to annihilate the person that she hates. By the way, if you think that's stupid, we've seen, I've seen this happen in lots of families where people are carrying around hatred and animosity for something that happened years and years and years and years ago. They're still hanging on to it and they'll often take every opportunity not to kill somebody, but they'll speak badly of the person that hurt them. Every time they talk about them, it's going to be hatred and animosity and revenge and slander and everything else that can happen. There's nothing more toxic in anyone's life than hanging on to animosity towards another person because you don't like what they said or how they treated you. And so the petition becomes this toxic waste leaking out of Herodias, and it's not just something that's destroying her, it's going to destroy others. The collateral damage here is very real and very difficult to deal with. And as much as Herod will never make a who's who's list on the top 100 entrepreneurs or whatever happens to be, or most famous people, or most lovely people, or most ingratiating people in the world, Herod now is suddenly confronted with a massive dilemma because of his own promise. It says, the king was exceedingly sorry. Oh, I really feel bad for Herod. If you know Herod at all, it's kind of like, you'd almost want to say, good, someone's going to stick it to you like you've been hurting everybody else in the world. This guy's a bit of a monster, so it's really hard to feel sorry for him. But in this particular situation, that particular term is exactly the term that Jesus expressed in Matthew 26. So I want you to feel it to know that this isn't just fake news about Herod. In Matthew 26, Jesus is in the garden. He says, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remember the context? 
Jesus is about to be, go to the cross. And he, later on in that same text, is going to take three of his men with him and say, wait here, and I'm, he goes to plead with the Father, and he says, listen, if there's any way that you could remove this cup from me, that I have to go through this, in a sense, he's begging his Father to say, could it be so? And then, of course, finishes with saying, but it's your will that needs to be done, not my emotional reaction to this. And so the same word is used here as what's used with Herod. And so in spite of how demonical we might see Herod, he is really crushed by the reality of what he's suddenly done. I mean, I, I, I borrow the same language, that this thing crushes him also because he spent his whole life protecting John because he saw him as a holy man and righteous and he's protected him. He really was fascinated by the things he had to say, but he was always confused by it. But he protected John. He was his rescuer, his savior. He's he's run interference with Herodias and the others from getting to him for all this time, and all of a sudden he wanted to do something that would impress his guests and do something for his stepdaughter, and all of a sudden now it's totally backfired. (laughs) You ever shot off your mouth and it backfired? You ever said something to somebody that came back and snapped you in the head? Well, if you haven't, you're a better person than I am. (laughs) And so I think he actually feels the weight of this. The one person who stood between John and death was Herod, in spite of who he was. And now all of a sudden, he's blown it all wide open because he made a promise to his stepdaughter at a birthday party. So now the conflict in him is that he has to weigh out the reality of what it means to have all these people around him who he made public this promise and vowed to his stepdaughter in public and saving John. And he obviously hasn't got his his compass, his moral compass quite aligned and he hasn't quite got it figured out because he doesn't know whether he needs to cave in and make sure he keeps his word because he needs all these people's support and acceptance or he's going to allow this promise to get John executed. (laughs) We run into the same thing today, don't we? Hey, if you'll love me, then you'll let me... Hey, if you really care about this, then you'll go along with what I'm doing. Oh, but if we lie this one time, then no one's going to find out. It won't be any big deal. And so now he's caught between keeping his promise or saving John. He's caught trying to live on both sides of the fence, trying to impress his friends and build his network of people that he needs and their resources to keeping his word or protecting the very person that he has spent all this time trying to save from the vindictive animosity of people in his own family. By the way, if you think your life is complicated, I don't know if, I can't get into all of it, But there's a little bit of a competition stuff going on within Herod and Philip and Herodias. Now remember, I can't put it all together for you, but 
Herodias was married to Philip. That was Herod's brother. Uh, they, she left him and started living with Herod. Now, she had a brother. Herodias had a brother named Agrippa who was friends with the emperor in Rome. His son, Drusus, was his best friend. He spent a lot of time living in Rome. But he was a completely irresponsible person. He was very magnanimous, he was outgoing, he could build a lot of friendships, but he spent money like nobody's business, and he was always poor and broke, and he was always sort of having people bail him out of his situations. He had finally run out of gas at that end because I think his friend, if I understand the history books properly, passed away, so he had no one else to connect with except his wife, and he was good friends with Drewis' wife, but that couldn't continue, so he comes back to Jerusalem area, and he is still trying to pawn off and get bailed out of all his debt. Now, somewhere in that story, he manages to get his act together, and he's got all this pomp and circumstance, and uh, Herodias sees what her brother has done and doesn't feel Herod's living up to what her brother's prestige is, so she tries to convince him to go to Rome and appeal to the emperor about giving him a bigger kingdom, a bigger responsibility, because Herod was simply a tetrarch. They divided the area up into four places. He was one little ruler out of four that ruled in the area. Agrippa found out about it, beat him to the emperor, wrote some really nasty letters about Herod, and the emperor ended up banishing Herod out of the country and took away his rule. Because Agrippa, uh, Herodias was Agrippa's, uh, what is it? Yeah, <laughs> sister, there we go, looking for it somewhere in there. The emperor was going to give her the freedom to not get banished with her husband, but she sort of pulled the novel thing and said, no, in good times and bads, I'm going to stick with him, so she got banished as well. They could write a family soap opera today that would just outstrip even Hallmark. You see how messed up these families are? They're kind of like us a little bit. They're just as broken and messed up and everything else, and all this stuff is going on. But the real contempt that you see flowing out of all this brokenness is when the daughter comes back and she says, I want the head of John the baptizing one. And the hatred and the disrespect is off the charts. And it wasn't just that they wanted him executed. There's, there's two things going on. They wanted him executed, so he's completely out of the way, but then they want him, literally, to put his head on a platter and bring it back to the party so that everyone can see it. I don't know, it seems like a pretty good way to ruin a birthday party. But there are people that you'll run into who are so self-absorbed in themselves, and especially in their own anger and animosity, that they don't really give a rip about anyone else. All they will do is always leverage things for their own advantage and for their own gain and their own benefit. It doesn't matter how evil it is. It doesn't matter how much collateral damage it caused. It, they don't even care if they ruin celebrations like birthday parties and weddings or even funerals. They will, traf, they will trample on anything just to do their own thing. And I will suggest to you in the bigger picture of theology and the world that we live in that one of the things that we see here is that the more that the family that God created and gave to us as his gift, the more that disintegrates, the more evil will flourish. One of the greatest boundaries, one of the greatest protections against evil is the family. 
And this one is coming apart at the seams. I mean, they're literally leveraging one another so that they can get their own way. Everybody has their own self-interest. And I will propose to you that some of the greatest evil in our world originates because of the disintegration of the family. Now, on the other side of it, many of us have been victims to that. We would kind of look at our own families and go like, I'm not sure I had anything to do with this, but it's a mess. And I think we also have to realize that in the brokenness of humanity, whether it's family or not, that's when God's grace and his gospel rescues broken human beings to restore their life not only back to Christ and gives them a chance to learn about righteousness, but he can restore families. But he can't if we hang on to our animosity. See, some of us feel like we've been severely damaged by people in our family. And maybe we have. Sometimes we're the ones that have done the damage on others because we're standing for what's right. The end result, doesn't, it doesn't look much different sometimes. We've got people that are selfish doing their own thing. They've got animosity and they don't care if they leverage even family members to do their own thing. But in the midst of the depth of our brokenness, this is where God's grace shines brightest. But there is one comfort in the midst of this text. And you're kind of like, good, I'm glad we're getting to something. And it's a little phrase in the last verse that I think has some value, and then I'll outline quickly the four principles that we're talking about. It simply says that John's disciples came and took his body, and they went off and laid it in a tomb. Now, if I sort of do some systematic theology here, one of the things we've got to remember is that for the follower of Christ and the believer in Jesus, the reality is his death is never the end, no matter how horrible it is. The great promises of 1 Corinthians 15 says that the greatest hope and the greatest salve for the pain and suffering and death in the world, especially when we face it ourselves, is the glorious resurrection of Jesus. And that he someday is going to take all this messed up bodies, no matter how broken we are, no matter how messed up we have, no matter who we've hurt or how we've been hurt, and he's going to make it all go away when he comes and returns and he restores us to give us imperishable bodies that will never be subject to pain and suffering and the evil that's in this world. But in this particular context, there's two simple things that happen. The disciples hear of John's death and the horribleness of it and the evil that drove it and they come and collect his body. The second thing they do is that they go and they place him in a tomb. He's just not pitched out into the ditch to rot. And I will propose to you that he was valued by those whom he truly invested in. And the second thing is that he was honored by those who were his friends. Now, why is that important? Let me give you four quick principles. 
the reason we have this story where Herod and John is in the public challenging Herod of his immoral behavior and the things that are against the law to going and dying at the hands of a young girl who demands his head on a platter tells me, first of all, that words have the power to give life or to destroy. Do you see it all the way through this text? What people say, what people promise, what people vow isn't meaningless. It carries incredible weight. And we can say things that give life to people or we can give words that destroy people. Now, you may not feel like you're ever going to face physical death and being persecuted by your, for your faith, but I'll tell you, some of us are living with a lot of anger and hatred and animosity towards people who have verbally destroyed us when we were younger, and we can't let go of it because the pain is too great. Proverbs chapter 10 says, the one who conceals hatred has lying lips, and whoever utters uh, slander is a fool. When words are many, transgressions are not lacking. Proverbs 29, do you see a man who is hasty in his words? There is more hope for a fool than him. I think Herod is probably feeling like the fool. Because when he went to impress people with his generosity and made these grandiose promises and vowed to his stepdaughter about giving her anything she wanted, he was pretty hasty in doing it. And now it's backfired, and the very person he was trying to protect from these people now gets executed because he shoots off his mouth and makes these great promises. Our culture loves to gaslight people. We're in a world where people don't listen to one another. They don't respect one another. They just argue and yell over them and intimidate them to try to force them to accept other people's positions. Words can be deadly, and we may not physically feel like we die, but we feel like often we have been destroyed internally in terms of our self-worth and our value and our significance and our security has been shredded by people who have attacked us verbally. God forbid that we would be the ones that attack others. Whether they're other Christians or whether they're people in the world, we need to remember that words have power to give life and to destroy And the reason that John ends up dead is because people were shooting their mouths off trying to impress people. The second principle I want to share with you is that some of the most painful and difficult moral dilemmas we face as individuals are not as much what others do, but what we must decide to do. See, Herod sort of became the catalyst for all this stuff. If he just enjoyed the party and celebrated, hadn't made all these grandiose promises, he wouldn't have had someone in the background thinking evil stuff and how to manipulate that to get someone destroyed. But regardless of that, Herod could have blamed a lot of things and circumstances and blamed Herodias and his stepdaughter and could have blamed a lot of things, but he had to make a choice. And because his moral compass wasn't aligned with what God wanted, or certainly even for him what the law wanted, he caved in to the peer pressure that he was facing. And regardless of what it is, 
and we love to blame other people and other things, the issue comes down not to what other people do, but what we have to choose to decide to do. That's the greatest moral dilemmas we'll face in life. And if we don't know how to make those decisions, we can find ourselves in a spot of great sorrow, even to feeling like we're gonna die inside because we don't know how to make those decisions. Because we're either gonna cave into the peer pressure or we're gonna face the animosity of them. The third principle is this. I will suggest to you based on John's life that the significance of a godly life is not measured by how one dies but how one lived. I know lots of husbands that will probably die for their wife if that came if someone broke into their house and they had a choice they'd probably die for her. But marriages are falling apart because guys don't know how to live to support their wife. See, the issue isn't how we die, it's how we live. And the fourth one is this. The impact of a godly life is not measured by one's popularity, but the quality of friendships. Even in spite of that, his friends weren't afraid to come and collect John's body and take it away out of evil hands and then honor him by putting him in a tomb rather than just leaving him to be discarded by Herod and his evil people any way that they want. 1 Timothy 6 says, Godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world and we cannot take anything out of it. Herod was more concerned about what he could keep rather than what he was going to lose. Sometimes those afflictions clutter up our heart. We struggle with making moral decisions because our compass isn't aligned with Jesus. We don't know how to deal with the peer pressure because... We don't have our convictions and our values in the right place. If we're gonna be disciples of Jesus, we need to understand that sometimes it's gonna put us in difficult situations that may cost us something, like it did for John. But his life isn't disgraced by the way he died. It was honored by Jesus by saying, here's the greatest man that ever lived because he was on task for Jesus. I don't think we need to worry about how we're going to die. We need to worry about how we're going to live. Do bad things happen to God's people? Yeah, they do. How are we going to live in the midst of bad circumstances? Do we honor Jesus or do we cave to the peer pressures? Not an easy choice. Father, we know that we live in a world where Jesus said we're going to have trouble. You never promised that that everything would go smoothly, that you would be there to rescue us from every bad thing that happened. But we know our lives are absolutely secure in the palm of Jesus because no matter how badly we may die at the hands of evil people, we know that we're absolutely safe and secure in the hands of Christ. Lord, the issue isn't how are we going to die, it's how we're going to live. And sometimes we get caught trying to live popularity contests.
rather than having our lives fixed on Jesus so we can be holy and righteous, that we might honor him above everything else. Bad things may happen to us, but even there, we have the choice to live for you or to save ourselves. And I pray that you will implant within us the deepest beliefs and convictions and values that help us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. No matter how bad the circumstances. And for this we pray in Christ's name, amen.